You're listening to the Assembly Call IU podcast and postgame show, the place where Indiana fans across the globe hang out online after every IU basketball game. Join us for our live broadcasts on Thursday nights and immediately following every IU game at our website, assemblycall.com. That's assemblycall.com. Okay, the inaugural edition of Banner Monday coming right up. But before we get to that, a quick word about tickets from our sponsor, SeatGeek. You know, getting tickets online can be far too complicated. There are hundreds of sites. They each have varying levels of reliability, so it's hard to know who to trust. And that is why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price that you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Imagine being there against Chicago State, Romeo Langford's first official game at Simon Scott Assembly Hall. That'd be a great place to be. Or when Marquette comes in, a team that might be in the top 25, one of the marquee non-conference games on Indiana's schedule, that'll be a good one. Same thing with Louisville. There's so many great home dates on the IU schedule this year, and SeatGeek is a great place to go to find the best tickets at the best value. And the thing is, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than it's ever been. They search multiple ticket sites, they grade every ticket based on value, and that helps you immediately identify the best seats for your budget, and every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. I find that it's very convenient to use when I need tickets to a sporting event, a concert, so many other types of live events, and that's why I recommend it to you as well. And best of all, Assembly Call listeners get $20 off of their first purchase. So just download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code ASSEMBLY, that's promo code ASSEMBLY, A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y, and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. And now, the first edition of Banner Monday. Enjoy. Welcome, Hoosier fans, to the inaugural edition of Banner Monday, where each week this season we are going to provide you with our unique brand of insight and commentary on your Indiana Hoosiers, as well as Big Ten basketball at large, plus other fun segments that we've been wanting to do but just haven't had time for with only one weekly show. This is the first edition of Banner Monday, and it is our 431st episode overall of the Assembly Call, recorded on the afternoon of Monday, October 26, 2018. I am your host, Jared Morris. And let's begin this edition of Banner Monday, how we begin every edition of the Assembly Call, and that is with our Hoosier Proud Banner Moment. And Indiana is the national champion. When it comes down, Indiana will be champion. Smart takes the shot. The Hoosiers have won the national championship. Today's Banner Moment occurred over the weekend when the initial Ken Palm projections for the 2018-19 season were released. Indiana will begin the season ranked number 28 in Ken Palm, the same spot they occupy in the preseason AP poll as well. Now, this represents a huge jump over the spot Indiana started and ended last season with. The Hoosiers began the year 65th in Ken Palm and ended it 71st. 
And while preseason projections can only tell us so much and plenty of teams will over and underperform their current rankings, history does inform us that preseason rankings in college basketball are pretty predictive, generally speaking, for which teams will be good, which teams will be bad, and which teams are likely to be caught on the bubble in between. So what's a positive sign that Archie Miller has his Indiana program back hovering near the outskirts of Ken Palm's top 25 in just his second season. But here's the big question for Indiana and Archie Miller this season. Can this Indiana team actually improve upon its preseason Ken Palm ranking? Because it's not something Indiana has done with any recent regularity. I just gave you the numbers for last season, which represented a six-spot drop from preseason ranking to postseason ranking in Archie's first season. In 2017, Tom Crean's final season, Indiana opened the year 16th and finished 44th. In 2016, Indiana started 13th and finished 11th, so that was solid. But in 2015, Indiana started 26th and finished 48th, and in 2014, started 25th, finished 63rd. That's an average drop over the past five seasons of 18.4 spots. Not good, especially for a program that still wants to believe it's one of college basketball's blue bloods. So Indiana getting its preseason ranking back into a respectable range was a necessary first step for Archie Miller. Now the key is to actually build on it as the season progresses and finish in a better place than we start. Okay, now let me introduce my esteemed co-host for this first segment. It is a voice that you are all too familiar with. He's a columnist for The Big Lead and a co-host of The Hangover, and you know him as Indiana Radio's most opinionated, polarizing, over-the-top personality. I pretty much have an opinion on everything. He is Ryan Phillips. Ryan, thank you for uh, for making the time to be part of this new little content experiment that we're trying here. Do you have anything that you wanna that you wanna rant about this week? Uh, just or do you wanna save it for Thursday? Just that I'm extremely tired because I was up doing a radio show. I woke up at 4 a.m. today to do uh, the morning show on 1090, Mighty 1090 in San Diego. San Diego Sports Leader, the Mighty 1090. Uh, so I, uh, I'm i extremely tired right now. But other than that, I'm doing great. Uh, I saw the poll came out. I guess my only rant is I wish Indiana would have been in the top 25, but yeah. it's fine. I'm, I'm happy with upsetting people. So here's what's on tap for this first edition of Banner Monday. We're going to do a listener mailbag coming up right now. We're hoping to do a Big Ten roundup with Mike DeCourcy. We'll see. We got some tech things we have to figure out there, but that is going to be a weekly segment here on Banner Monday, whether it happens today or we start it next week. And then we're going to do something that we're calling Basketball 201 with Ben Ladner, one of our new interns this year, going over the basics of pick and roll coverage, including how Indiana covered it last year and how the Hoosiers might try to cover it more often this season. So that'll be a really interesting segment. All of that coming this week on Banner Monday. Before we hop in to this week's mailbag, I do want to just remind you real quick about the best way to shop online for great deals on IU basketball and football tickets. Remember this URL, iutickets.shop. It will take you right to SeatGeek, where you can immediately find the best deals on IU basketball tickets, other sports tickets, concert tickets, and more. And as a bonus, you can use the promo code ASSEMBLY to get $20 off your first purchase. And when you use that URL, iutickets.shop, we actually get paid a commission for referring you. So it is a great way to support the show. Again, the URL is iutickets.shop. Thank you. Okay, Ryan. So as you know, and as many of our listeners know, every week on Assembly Call Radio, we reserve our final segment for listener questions. And it always makes for a fun discussion. But the one kind of frustration that we have is that we almost never have time to get through all of the questions that are submitted. So we decided to reserve the first segment of Banner Monday to answer some of the extra questions that we don't have time for on Thursday, plus any new ones that come up over the weekend, you can always submit questions to us via Twitter, um, inside of the Assembly Call community, um, if you're in there. So lots of ways to do that, and this is going to give us another spot on a weekly basis to get to those questions. Ryan, you ready to start answering some questions? Let's do it. 
Okay, so here is the first one. This one comes from East Coast Hoosier. He says, with the season right around the corner, curious how we feel kind of about the season confidence-wise compared to, say, a month and a half ago. Has anything changed for you over the past month, month and a half that's made you more or less confident? Not really. I, I think we're kind of where we were. Um, you know, we had Hoosier hysteria, but I don't think that really changed anything because we didn't really see much. Um, I, I think other than Race Thompson maybe stepping out and looking. But I, but we on the, on the show have talked up Race Thompson for a while, so that didn't really surprise me. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of at where I was. Uh, I guess some of the confidence in Devontae Green maybe has helped some. But other than that, I think we're kind of where we were uh, all offseason, really. Uh, you know, because I think we've all been pretty optimistic on the show. So I, I don't think that there's really been much of a change. What about you? Yeah, I would say I'm probably about right where I am. You know, I, I think you know, there've been a couple things. I think, you know, you mentioned kind of the point guard thing with Devonte Green. I think some of the comments about Robert Finnessy and, and right. maybe how, Both you know, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe how prepared he is, you know, to step in and, and play right away, especially defensively. That gives me some more confidence just in the stability at that position. Um, you know, kind of seeing how Evan Fitzner uh, has, has seemed to ingratiate himself and, and obviously his shooting is ad, as ad advertised. But I think for the most part, you know, we kind of expected some of that stuff. So I think I'm kind of in the same place. I'm certainly more excited. <laughs> I get more excited by the day. Of course. Um, you I'd know, say that I think Fitzner might be the thing that, that, that people would be a little more optimistic about. Um, if there was one aspect that kind of makes you a little more, oh, hey, all right, we got something here. I think Fitzner's probably it. But other than that, I, I think we're kind of where we were. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and really, Not the, that that's a bad thing. That's no, because we've been very confident. Right. I, you know, I, I will say the only thing that balances that stuff out and the reason why I can list those positives and not be more confident, I guess, is I do continue to reflect on last season. And, and I guess, you know, kind of those numbers that I stated earlier where Indiana has underperformed preseason expectations. Maybe there's just a little bit of kind of that weathered caution of seeing this program have expectations and yeah. not live up to them that is keeping me from maybe adding some confidence. But, you know, I'm still still very confident. Um, I think it's going to be a really good season. I think this team has a really high ceiling. Um, so, you know, just, I'm just ready for the games to start so we can actually stop you know, projecting and talking hypotheticals and actually see what this team does sure. on the floor. So I think everybody is. Yeah. I'll just knock this out. Okay. So here, here's not really that fun of a question, but we're going to hit it anyway. From Josiah, what team will give Indiana their first loss of the season? That's interesting because if you look early on, there are some games that are against top, you know, t I, I would say comparatively to what we're used to seeing in the preseason, the non-conference, uh, some tough teams and you got Marquette, you've got at Arkansas and then of course at Duke. And, and I think most people are projecting them to lose at Duke. And I would say that's probably the one where you're looking at and say, okay, that's where they can get the first loss. But both Marquette and Arkansas, especially for a younger team, if you're looking at how many contributors are going to be young, those are both tough games. And, and Marquette plays really up tempo and shoots a lot of threes. You're going to have to, the outside shooting is going to have to be there for Indiana this year to compete with a team like Marquette because that's a unique up-tempo style team. So if Indiana's not hitting its threes, that Marquette game could be a loss. Uh, at Arkansas, it's always hard to go on the road uh, early on in the non-conference. But I would say Duke is probably where we're targeting the first loss. But, but those two other games jump out to me as well as potential uh, bumps in the road. Yeah, 
I mean, that Marquette game is going to be tough. The reason why I think that we will win that one is that it's at home. The atmosphere is going to be insane because it's the first big game. So that gives us the edge there. And I think, you know, you go on the road to Arkansas, that's going to be a really tough matchup. And I think it can really be important for this team long term. It's also a 1230 game. Yeah. those early starts. Yeah, it's it's weird. So, I mean, I, I do think we'll win that one, but I think it'll be close. So I would say the same thing. I mean, I think the smart money is probably on it, you know, on it being Duke, although I think, you know, we'll have a better chance to win that one than, than some people think. But I guess if I had to, you know, to kind of bet on it, I would say Duke because I feel confident in our ability against Marquette. And there's something about that Arkansas game that just keeps reminding me of the NC State game in 2011. And that's a game that we won. So I'm going to I'm going to stick with that comparison. Devontae Green's going to have a really tough matchup in that Marquette game against Marcus Howard, shutting him down. Uh, you know, a really good shooter, just an incredible shooter. I watched him last year in Maui, and uh, those guys, they can really fill it up. So, it, it, again, just going to be all about shutting that down. And then you, the thing about Arkansas is they play that unique up-tempo system where they're going to press you all game and, and, and try and run you out the building. And so it's two very strange styles to go up against early you know it's one of those things where when you face a team like that several times a year you can kind of figure it out and 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 play against it you're used to preparing for it when it's non-conference and you've never seen it before it's kind of tough and and so uh, both of those games it's really hard for me to say either one but I, i will say duke but both of those other games could be you know tough ones and and look if they lose against marquette or arkansas i don't think anybody would be flipping out I think that it's like, okay, we're still trying to figure this out, trying to get it together, trying to figure everything out. But people shouldn't uh, be. There will be people flipping out. No, of course. But, you know, <laughs> hopefully it's again, not us. <laughs> and the way, I mean, what we've known about college basketball for a long time is you start to judge teams at the beginning of January. That's where you start to figure it out, figure out, you know, what you've got, who you are, and, and you start to sort of put it together, sort of about the beginning of January. So this is what, what you want is for IU to have its bad losses out of the way or, or just, not bad losses, but have the the games where they don't play well out of the way by beginning of January. Yeah. You know who doesn't think it's going to be Duke handing us our first loss? We're beating Duke. Coach. He's already on yeah. record with his prediction. I like yeah. it. Good luck with that, Coach. I, I, like, I like the confidence. Uh, okay. This if it comes- were at home, I might, I might be with him. But on the road, that's going to be a tough one. It is going to be tough. No, no question it's going to be tough. But we are going to have the best player on the floor in Juwan Morgan. So I know all the freshmen are great. Juwan's still going to be the best college basketball player this year. Uh, (laughs) This question comes from Phil. Jared, we all know Calvert is your favorite. Who's your, since he played, who has been your favorite? He says, I was a big Charlie Miller fan, though he never maybe reached his potential for whatever reason. I know Um, the answer to this. Who do you think it is? Victor Oladipo. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely Victor. I mean, Victor's my second favorite Hoosier ever. Uh, You know, just that three-year ride that we went on with him, you know, it wasn't just uh, everything that, that, we were able to experience as a team the win over Kentucky, you know, being number one, all that. It was how rewarding it was to watch him go from such a, a raw but talented guy as a freshman to seeing what he became as a junior and knowing how much of that was just based on hard work and his tenacity to get better. And so I think, you know, that and just how much he seemed to love and appreciate being a Hoosier and the fact that he reciprocated so much of the love that Hoosier fans gave him and he continues to do now, you know, that he's a pacer. So, I mean, you add all that up and he's, you know, for a lot of people, he is, you know, one of, if not their favorite Hoosier. Um, and for me, he's mine. yeah, and, and it's my answer. Yeah, again, I mean, I think it's a lot of people's answer, and it's it's warranted. You know, for everything he did on the court, off the court, he's just a great representative of IU basketball and gave us so many memories. You know, and that's, and that's exactly what Calvert was, too. 
you know, it's a damn shame neither one of those guys won a championship because they were definitely both champions. So yeah, definitely. Um. Okay. The next question is from JD. What IU player have we not been talking about enough since last season? Maybe maybe a bad show to bring this question up on because we've talked a lot about everybody <laughs> doing yeah. a show every week. But uh, there's anybody that we haven't talked about enough, right? How about, who how is about it? we say people people who aren't people nationally aren't talking? Okay, about. We'll, okay, we'll people there. nationally. Um, jeez, I don't know. You know, I would say Devonte Green. I think that people forget the good that Devonte Green did last year. I, the, he had some really good games, and and we're getting excited about Justin Smith's growth. Growth. We're excited, about, but and that that's what I would say about it is that we're hearing about who's going to be the third man. And everybody seems to assume Justin Smith will be that guy could be Devonte green. I'm not saying it will be, but it could be if he evens out some of his performances. Remember at Ohio state, he dropped 20 against Minnesota. He had 19 against Iowa he had 18. I mean, this is a guy who can score in the big 10 and he's shown that he can score in the big 10. The, the question is just sort of smoothing out the edges on the game and, and refocusing. And, and and making it so he's more consistent. I'd rather have him scoring 10 points a game than scoring 20 and then zero. You, you know, I'd rather have that consistency than having the high ceiling games. And and I think that's the guy that, that people are missing out on because if he can straighten that out and if he can become consistent, I think he's the guy that, that people are overlooking. Yeah, I would say, I mean, if we're taking this kind of from a national perspective, then Justin Smith is the guy that I would say. And, you know... It's one of those things like inside of kind of Indiana basketball circles, we've talked a ton about how he's such a likely breakout candidate. Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, I understand why maybe on a national scale, people aren't talking about him quite so much because, you know, he had a couple big moments as a freshman, but his numbers weren't overwhelming. He didn't come in with the huge high school pedigree. So, you know, not a lot of people know the stats of like how he finished the last 10 games and his numbers and all the stuff that we know. But I think he is going to be the guy that in hindsight, people are going to like national people will have missed on. Like, you know, so we, how did we not see this coming? Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think he really is poised to have a big season. Now, you know, when you have Romeo, you have Juwan, they're going to take up a lot of offensive opportunities. So it'll be interesting to see how many points Justin can score. But I think he really showed a high basketball IQ at times last year. His defense really improved as the season went on. And I think what we will see more from him, certainly if these practice videos that we've seen are any indication and what we saw last year is just a lot of highlight plays. And so I think mm-hmm. that will help him kind of grow his stature nationally. And, and, and if he can get better at converting some of the non-highlight ones, just the tough physical plays down low, as Archie talked about, he can be a guy who gets you 10, 12 points a game because he's going to have those opportunities. He just needs to finish them a little better than he did last year. I would mention Zachary Roberts as well. I think, I think yeah. we talked about the shooting woes of Zach McRoberts a lot last year, and it wasn't that he didn't shoot it well. It's just that he didn't shoot it. I mean, he shot 39% from three. The problem was he didn't shoot enough. And and if he can really lock in and be willing to pull the trigger this year and have the confidence, I mean, he could be a really nice piece for this team. And I think people, because there's so much talent on this team, are overlooking it. And that might be a mistake in the end. Yep. All right, let's hit a couple more here real quick. Uh, This is from Swish. Rob Finnessy, Jerome Hunter, and Jake Forrester all have tremendous capability defensively. Providing they adapt well into the pack line defensive schemes, do you see all three finding a consistent spot in the rotation? I think we've, you know, I think Rob Finnessy is clearly going to be in the rotation. Like that's, I think we all understand that. And I think we all expect Jerome to be at some point. The question is how much is it early? I think we've made the comparison with Justin Smith, how his 
the track of his freshman season could go a little bit like Justin. He'll get opportunities early when he's really kind of playing well, locked in, in the flow of the game. He'll probably get more minutes in that game, but there may be some games early he doesn't play as much in, but we expect his role to really grow because he's just such a talented player. And then Jake is going to be an interesting one because he's going to have some opportunities, I think, early, especially if Duran can't play. And then it's just, you know, how much does his energy translate into production? And sometimes that's yeah. not always easy for a freshman to do. But he's going to get a chance, and then it's just going to be what he does with it when the lights are on. What I would like to see almost this year from Indiana is have almost like two lines like in hockey. Like you have your starting five and then have Rob Finnessy, Jerome Hunter, Jake Forza, sort of on a second unit like you see in the NBA where those five guys play together and develop together. Now, obviously, you'd have mixing and matching based on fouls and substitutions or whatever. But I think it would be great if there was a second unit that played together could be consistent with each other and you could really truly give all five starters some solid rest uh, rather than having a guy like Juwan Morgan or, or Romeo Langford play 33 minutes a game, bring that down to 28. So they're fresher at the end of the season. Uh, Jake Forrester, uh, the other two, I expect fantasy and Hunter to definitely be in the rotation. Forrester, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's going to be about finding spots in the rotation where he can contribute and then when a guy like Deron Davis, if he comes back all the way and is playing, how does he find his way on the floor? He's going to have to earn those minutes later in the season by playing well early in the season uh, because it could definitely be something where he just, you know, by, doesn't play himself into the rotation long term. Yep. Okay. Last question, Ryan. Uh, this is from Mark. So last year you were questioning the, the two foul sit in the first half rule that Archie uses, you know, sitting guys in the first half once they get two fouls. Do you think that with more depth, he might be willing to relax that a bit? Or do you think it is more of a coaching thing where he's sending a message to players that they need to play without fouling and it isn't just about saving them for the second half? What do you think, Ryan? I, I think with the, the two fouls and you sit rule, um, I think if you pick up the fouls in the first 10 minutes, you definitely need to sit because there's way too much time for you to pick up a third. And, and, and so leaving a guy in with all that time. Like, look, if you pick up your second foul with three minutes left in the first half or something like that, maybe you leave a guy in and, and or whatever. But if it's early, you got to get him out of the game. I, I'm sorry. Okay, but for how long? But for how long, well, though? Agree. You get him out, and then you see how the game's going. If you desperately need that guy late in the first half, if you can survive without him, you, you leave him on the bench. That's just how you do it. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I know that that is against your your... Uh, against your philosophy. But I think if you can survive without him, you leave him out until the halftime. If not, if you feel the game slipping away, then you slide him back in. But you certainly have to take them out as soon as they get that second one, then see how the game is going, and then insert them back in. I think that is more important. Uh, preserving them for the second half is certainly more important because we see, especially with how it depends how important a player is. Is it Juwan Morgan? You're going to need him in the second half. Is it Romeo Langford? You're going to need him in the second half. Um, but yeah, I would say with more depth, maybe he does relax that a little. But I also think with more depth, maybe you've got the room to leave the guy on the bench a little bit longer. Uh, so I think it could work both ways. It's really going to all depend on how Archie wants to coach it. But I think that the more depth you know, doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier for him to relax it. I think it might mean that he feels more comfortable leaving a guy on the bench for longer. Yeah, like I don't have a rule on this. My philosophy is just that context matters. So a coach shouldn't have a rule. Like you shouldn't have a rule where it's just like, okay, a guy has two fouls, you're sitting in for the whole half. I just don't like that. Because look, you know, how confident you feel in your bench, 
you know, whether you think that the two fouls were bad calls, but the guy is playing good defense. You know, if it's a young guy or a more experienced guy, there's so much that goes into making those decisions. I just like to see the full kind of breadth of the situation, the full context be taken into account rather than two fouls you're sitting for the, for the half. I, I just, I don't like that. Now, I think you look at Archie's history, and Ken Palm now has a metric on this that tracks this, and he's been a guy, I mean, all throughout his time at Dayton, I think there was only one time that he was in like the top 200 in terms of leaving guys out there to play more. So he is very conservative uh, when it comes to this. Obviously, he knows a lot more about basketball than I do, and I, you know, I trust his decision-making, um, but we'll see. I would like to see him open it up a little bit and let context dictate it a little bit more, but we'll have to see. We don't really know Archie well enough yet to know, and it's not always easy to make a comparison from what he did at Dayton to what he did now because the talent and the depth that he has now is different, so the context changes. So I don't want to base it just on what he did at Dayton because it could be you know, it could be a little bit different, but there was nothing that we saw last year, I guess I would say to suggest that what he did at Dayton, uh, you know, wasn't just his basic philosophy on it. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that he, you know, you develop who you are and, and, and your philosophies very early and you tend to stick with that. Uh, but you know, we'll see what happens. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see if you're right. It, uh, the, 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 guy asking the question sorry i forgot who it was is uh is right i think it's it's really going to be different this year for him because of the depth and he's never had that before how does it you know work for him and and how does he uh deploy that much talent when he's never had that before and and i'm sure he's learning as he goes with these guys Mm -hmm. just like every coach beginning of the season learning what he what he has in his players i think he's learning sort of as the season goes you're going to see him try and figure out how to distribute these minutes uh, particularly in the non-conference. It's, it's going to be testing the waters here because, again, I know that we want to win every game, but really this is about getting the team ready for March, getting the team ready for April, hopefully, and, 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 and really positioning them to make a run late in the Big Ten and to, to be in the top tier of the Big Ten, to be in a good position for the tournament, and to go uh, and make a run then. So really the whole season... You, you want to win a lot. You want to be ranked number one, of course, but the whole season is really a, a proving ground to win the Big Ten and to be in a good position when it comes to tournament time. So we'll see him, I think, experiment some. Well, and hopefully where some of that improvement happens early in January because that start of the Big Ten schedule is pretty rocky. So of course, <laughs> we better yeah. get going there. Any, uh, any final thoughts, Ryan, before we close up this segment? Uh, hopefully I get some sleep tonight because uh, I'll be waking up tomorrow. If you guys are listening, tune in to... 1090 a.m. Uh, the Ben and Woods show in the morning. I'll be doing that all week. Uh, it starts uh, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, you can stream it online or if you're in the market in San Diego. Hi, by the way. And uh, There are a few. Uh, we, do, we do have some San Diego folks. Uh, it's funny because the hangover, when we do the hangover show, uh, our podcast downloads, there's a bunch in like Indiana and Ohio <laughs> and like the surrounding areas. I'm like, oh, it's assembly call people tuning right. in. Um, so yeah, uh, I will be doing that all week from, uh, Eastern time It's nine to one. So, uh, tune in, there's a streaming link. Uh, it's on my Twitter and, uh, I'm sure Jared will retweet it as well. And the one loyal download from Italy that always comes, always comes through, (laughs) always comes through from Italy. Parents are back on Friday. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Alrighty. Uh, coming up on the assembly call, we are going to be joined by a special guest. It is Mike DeCourcy from BTN and the Sporting News for the first installment of our Big Ten Roundup. We're going to discuss his thoughts on IU, impressions from Media Day, and much, much more. Stick with us here on the assembly call. 
and welcome back to the inaugural edition of Banner Monday. You know, one of the things that we wanted to use this new weekly show to do is to bring in some outside expert opinions who can provide some insight, not just on IU, but the Big Ten Conference at large. And there is no one better to provide insight on Big Ten basketball than Mike DeCourcy, who covers Big Ten hoops for BTN, in addition to his columns for the Sporting News. So it is my pleasure to welcome Mike DeCourcy to the show in what will be a weekly segment here on Banner Monday. Mike, welcome to the Assembly Call. Well, thanks for having me, Jared. It's 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 an honor. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's you know as I was just talking about with Ryan, it's it's coming. You can kind of start to feel it coming. It kind of sank in for me earlier. I was listening to Zach Osterman do a radio interview, and he said, you know, we're basically just a month away from Indiana playing Duke, and for some reason, <laughs> like that game has always felt kind of so far away. And it's true, like it's gonna you know the season starts soon. It's gonna hit fast. Um, how, and I, and I know, I mean, as much as you love college basketball, you must just be excited and kind of ready to get things started. Well, especially given that, uh, the whole of the college basketball universe is going to be centered on Indianapolis on the first day to have the champions classic at bankers left life field house and to have, uh, Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, and Michigan state, uh, coming in for that game. And, uh, all of my colleagues, uh, in the business for the most part will be there at that game. I, I, this is, uh, I think, the eighth or ninth Champions Classic, and I've been at every one. But obviously, it's, it's a little nicer when it's only a half-hour commute to have to get down there. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start talking about Indiana, and that's how you know we'll begin this segment every week is kind of getting your reflections on Indiana, and obviously no games have been played yet. But what was your biggest takeaway from what Archie, Jawan, and Zach had to say at Big Ten Media Day? Well, other than Jawan looking really sharp, I mean, that was that was he, he was really impressive in his suit uh, at media day, his outfit at media day. He was one of the top best dressed guys there. Uh, that would be my biggest takeaway. But I thought it was interesting that Arch, uh, the way Arch talked about uh, talked about Romeo Langford and how he's working his way into the Indiana scene and how hard he's allowing himself to be coached. And obviously, Arch is going to push his players, uh, and you have to be able to embrace that. And, and he is doing that, according to Arch, and, and the fact that he is really fitting in well. And it's, I think it's going to be a fascinating thing to see how, how Romeo develops and how he's, how he's perceived. Uh, because in the time that I watched him play, and I did not see him play for New Albany, and it's a different animal when you are the singular star of a high school team and you're pursuing, you know, there are days when you're able to score 50 points or whatever. But when I saw him in a mix of similarly talented players with the USA under 19 national team tryouts, what stood out for me was not a guy who was going to score 50 points or whatever, but a guy who was going to make the right play almost every time down the floor. And Indiana basketball, Indiana fans know basketball as well as anybody anywhere. But I'm, you know, and so they may appreciate and probably will if if those if those right plays lead to more victories. I think they will appreciate him. But I'm I'm curious if if Romeo settles in and he averages somewhere around 14 or 15 points, he could have a fabulous year doing that. But will it be appreciated universally? that that's what he's doing. I, I, I worry about that a little bit because when I looked at him uh, and I watched him in that venue, that's what I thought I saw, a guy who would average that as a freshman and be wonderful doing it and be in service to his team being better. 
But I, I do worry sometimes people get so consumed with stats, whether or not people will expect too much of him. Hmm. That's a really good point. Really good point. Have you have you had a chance to attend an IU practice or do you have any I plans have to? Yet. No, it's on me. I was at Kansas and Missouri last week because I was doing the speech out in, in Kansas. So I haven't been able to get out there, but I'm hopeful uh, that I'll be able to get out there in the next couple of weeks. What is maybe the one thing or the couple of things that you'll be most intrigued to see or to watch when you get a chance to see him behind closed doors? Well, for me, the number one thing is what's happening at point guard. I, I If you look at Indiana's team, with the depth and the athleticism that they have and the experience and the talent, you, you have two high-end talents on that team now uh, with Jawan Morgan and Romeo Langford. And so, okay, so then who's putting all that together on the floor and making it work? And I, you know, a year ago, they clearly did not have the answer for that. And that's the question now. Do they, do they have the right person to make that happen? Or do they, maybe in the, in the, in the year that they had, or the off season that they had, did they find some new ways? You know, Indiana has guys who can get the ball at the floor and there are ways you can play offense uh, where it doesn't have to be point guard driven. I mean, uh, the Chicago Bulls won six championships and no one knew who really their point <laughs> guard was uh, because they ran, ran the triangle and point guard was not the key in that offense. So there are different appro- offensive approaches you can take that de-emphasize the point guard as long as you can get the ball up the floor and into your offense. And so maybe they go that way. So that's sort of what I'd be looking for if I were to go to a Hoosiers practice or eventually when we watch them play in a, in a, in an exhibition game or a, a real game. Any players besides Romeo and Jawan that you're especially curious to see? Well, you know, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, I, I think, that I'd be very interested in Smith and, and what he's the progress he he's made in the offseason because he is a dazzling physical specimen. I thought he had a nice freshman transition uh, to being able to show in, in certain circumstances, what kind of impact he might have. Uh, he can be a high end big 10 player. And I, 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 I believe he will be a high end big 10 player. It's just a question of when is he, is he that as a sophomore? Is he that as a junior? But it, I, you know, that would be, you know, how, how far has he come in his offseason and the progress he's made? That would be probably the number one thing, because if he's made that much progress, uh, you know, then they have three high end Big Ten players. And then you're starting to talk about a team that might be in position to win a championship. Yep. So <clears throat> let's move beyond IU a little bit here, because you really want to use this segment to, you know, to get your impressions of IU, but also provide uh, uh, some insight on the Big Ten as well. And one thing that we'll ask you each week is for your Big Ten power rankings, you know, one through four. So as you look at it right now in the preseason, who do you think are the top four teams in the Big Ten? Well, we picked, I picked Michigan to win the league. I, I, I don't really feel strongly about anybody, and in part because everybody's just a little bit missing something at least on paper. Now they may be addressing those and and solving those issues as they go through preseason practice. And when we see them on the floor, we might not have those questions any longer, but on paper, everybody pretty much has a a question or a series of questions. So I don't feel great about picking Michigan, but I love the fact that they are pretty much an intact unit from the defensive end. Their best defensive players are still in the program. They lost several of their best offensive players. But I, I, you go from Xavier Simpson at the point uh, to Charles Robinson on the one wing and Jordan Poole on the other and Isaiah Livers at the, at the four spot. 
Yeah, those are the best defensive players that were in the program a year ago. Maybe uh, Muhammad Ali Abdul Rahman would rank with those guys as well. But four of their five. And so I feel really good that they're going to be strong at the defensive end. And then who's leading the, the charge to figure out whether they can be a good offensive team, but a guy who's as good at figuring out offense as anybody in the country in John Beeline. So that's why I went with them. Uh, Michigan State probably has the most solid roster. Uh, the thing that they need is, uh, is something that John Calipari's talked about with his team is guys who that you know will be difference makers guys who can transcend the moment. I, 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 I'm not sure who that is at Michigan State. Uh, Nick Ward has supposedly made a lot of progress uh, in his conditioning, in his game, but it's still hard now to win, win, win games and championships with a low post center. I mean, they, he can make a difference, but is he the difference maker? It could be Cassius Winston. I mean, he's got the ball in his hands on every trip, and he's really good with it, and, and I like him a lot. Or it could be Josh Langford. He could go from being a guy who could start 35 games to, for you to being a first option now that he somebody needs to be. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, and then third, I went with Wisconsin uh, because I, I expect them being healthy will make a difference in their team. And that includes not just the guys like Kobe King and Demetri Trice who were gone last year most, most of the year, but a guy like Brad Davison who was a really good Big Ten player with one arm last year. His, his shoulder popped out so many times, he, he practically lost count, and it, it certainly impacted his performance. But uh, w- when he was able to play, he still played effectively. And then fourth, I went with Nebraska, another team that has a lot of guys back from a year ago. What Nebraska doesn't have, and I, and I think this is fascinating to watch, is they don't have the tradition of winning year after year. I mean, now they're expected to win. When they came back after the 2014 season and were expected to be good, a lot of guys up from that group back didn't keep everybody. They had a lot back, and they went right into the tank uh, because the pressure and expectations and whatever got to them. Well, now they, they bring back even more from this team than they did from the 2014 team a year later. And so now people are looking at them and saying, okay, you should be good. And that's a that, that responsibility changes how teams perform sometimes. Mike, I'm, I'm very disappointed in your top four, but I do appreciate that you don't pander but, to yeah, the audience. <laughs> they were, they would have been the fifth, but I, I want to see, you know, and I, and I, and I won't be at all shocked. I mean, I wouldn't be at all shocked if they won it because I, I mean, I, I gave you the reasons before, mm-hmm. but uh, safety wise, I figured that, you know, they probably had more things to solve than some of the others did. One thing that we've seen, especially you know, recently in the Big Ten, is a surprise team or two in the conference. If I told you right now that at the end of the season one of these teams would finish in the top four in the conference, who would you project it to be? Minnesota, Iowa, or Penn State? Because they all have things to like, but they also have you know maybe bigger holes even than those teams that we just yes. talked about at the top. If one of those did it, I would say probably Minnesota uh, because it, they're only two years removed from winning 24 games, getting a number five seed. And a lot of those guys, a lot of the guys that will presumably be healthy this year were missing in action a year ago. Curry uh, uh, was missing, and, 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 and that was a huge loss for them. Uh, they had so many players that either got injured or got let go uh, or uh, dismissed or whatever through the course of last year. It was a disaster for them. And they need to be whole. And then they, they need Isaiah Washington to be an effective guard for them, whether it's as a playmaking point guard or whether it's as as just a guy that's out there and can advance the ball, but they run their offense elsewhere, uh, they need him to be a good player 
but I, they would surprise me less. But as you said, Iowa, I mean, if all of a sudden Iowa took some pride in their defense, and, and, and that's where it starts with Iowa, it begins with pride. There are other elements to why they weren't good defensively a year ago, but I didn't see any pride in their defense at all. And so that would be a, a big step for them. I mean, they, they last year had, the, I think, the number 19 offense and number 242 defense in America. And so even if you approve to 80th, which still isn't good, but if you prove the 80th, you should be able to be a factor in the league. Yeah. Well, in, Indiana fans have some experience with teams that had that profile. It's uh, it can be it can make for a very frustrating season to watch. That's for sure. Um, you told us some of the things that, that you learned about IU at Big Ten Media. What are some of the most notable things that you learned about some of the other Big Ten teams at Media Day? What, what stuck out? I think the big, biggest takeaway I had from media day was was off the court. John Beeline standing up and saying after he was asked some questions about a, a former Michigan football player who runs an AAU program, Ty Streets, and whether or not uh, there would be any problematic issues relative to compliance. And he stood up and said firmly, we are not breaking rules here. Uh, we don't have any issues. I have no concerns in that area. I have never seen a coach be that emphatic about it. Because usually the coach is like, look, I know I'm not doing anything. And I'm pretty sure my assistants aren't doing anything. But I don't know that nobody is doing anything. And so I'm just going to stay quiet and hope nobody checks. Uh, he stood up and said no. And I thought that in the middle of the, the New York trial of the former Adidas executives and the former agency representative, for him to stand up and do that in the middle of that trial, I thought was a really good statement for college basketball. Because Michigan's coming off a year in which they – uh, in which they finished uh, as the Big Ten tournament champion and runner-up nationally. They've had seven number one picks in this decade. So they're doing, you know, they're getting good players, they're making good players, and they're winning games. And he says they're not breaking rules. I thought that was really positive for college basketball. On the floor, the thing that I thought was kind of interesting, I had a nice talk with uh, Tim Miles about their team. And we talked about their point guard, Glenn Watson, who a year ago, he was coming off of two years in which he was basically carrying the whole load. Uh, he was the best player they had, and they didn't have a lot else going on. And so whatever Glenn did was fine with Tim Miles. And a year ago, this past season, then they brought some really good players in. Uh, James Palmer transferred in. Uh, Isaac Copeland transferred in. And now they've got a real team. Isaiah Roby develops into a player as, after you know a freshman year where he didn't play much. And now they've got a real team and he's supposed to be running the show, but he can't quite break the habit of being the show. And that was an impact that had an impact on their ability to develop a cohesive uh, in-game operation. And I, and I, didn't, I, I knew that that was a problem for him, but it was interesting to hear Tim articula articulate that and then talk about how he thinks Glenn's really made a lot of progress in that area. And I think that it, it really, if, if indeed Glenn Watson is a true point guard this year who can still make things happen at the end of a shot clock or in transition uh, or when he's wide open, but really pay attention to trying to get Isaiah Roby better shots and James Palmer and Isaac Copeland, et cetera, then Nebraska becomes even more of a threat in the league. You mentioned the the trial and just you know kind of some of the controversy swirling around college basketball again heading into a season or into the season. What do you think, if anything, will actually be the outcome uh, of of everything that's kind of being uncovered? Uh, 
you know, down the line and how long might that take for, for anything it, to happen to some of these schools? It's going to take a while uh, because the NCAA, and I talked to some people today who aren't, aren't convinced that the NCAA needs to stand down, but the NCAA has agreed uh, from, all, from all indications to stand down while all, all these trials play out and not uh, in, investigate whether or not rules that they have were violated. Uh, and so it will take, we're, we're looking at one trial now, I believe there's one in February and one in May. Now, whether those February and May trials go through may be somewhat dependent on the outcome of this one. I'm not positive of that, but it may be that if the defense, uh, if the defense arguments in these cases, uh, excuse me, if the prosecution argument in these cases doesn't stand, then it, it you know, there might be some elements of the later cases that they might feel they don't have a, a, a lot to, to go with, but we'll see that uh, from, you know, and, but once we get through the April trial or the May trial, uh, which probably we would not have done until early summer next year, uh, then, then the NCAA can open the book. And these, these investigations usually take uh, at least a year, at least the process does between the investigation and the pre presentation of uh, of a notice of allegations and then a committee hearing for the infractions committee and then a, a verdict that comes usually three months after that. I mean, this is all so far down the line. And, and I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what the NCAA can prosecute uh, because they, they have a lot that's on uh, audio tape or videotape, uh, whether they can get access to that. They certainly have the documents, the charging documents that were presented. They have the trial transcripts. They'll have that. And the NCAA, I was not a big fan, as people who follow me know, of the work that the Rice Commission did for the NCAA. I thought they really did a lousy job in helping the game of basketball. But they did help the enforcement division in getting the rule forward and passed that says that now all those things I mentioned, trial transcripts, legal documents, et cetera, they can now be used in an NCAA investigation. Whereas before, the way the process worked was, Anything that came out in any of those venues, the NCAA investigators would then have to go basically relitigate all of it. And, 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 and sometimes they would get non-cooperation from particular witnesses, and then it would really make it difficult to prosecute their cases. Do you think, and I think the answer is yes, based on some tweets that I've seen from you, you know, like we've seen a lot of comments that the coaches have made, that Bill Self is alleged to have made, and other assistant coaches. I mean, and I think these are statements that they've made. But do you think it's important for observers who are watching this to resist the urge to jump to the conclusion that everybody's guilty? Because, because you know, I've listened to some coaches talk about this and said, look, sometimes you say something to keep a conversation going or to stay in the conversation, but it might not necessarily be an indication of what you're going to do. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because I saw some of the stuff and was like, oh, they said this. Well, clearly stuff is going on. But I've kind of tried to restrain myself from jumping to that conclusion quite so much. Do you think that's that's something that we should all be doing as we watch this? Yeah, absolutely. And some of it also is um, is is the implication. For instance, some of the texts that Bill Self sent that were entered into the court record. Um, Will you help us? And and on the other hand, you have an, a, a former Adidas. Uh, operative saying that he had given money to particular athletes or their, or, or in most cases, guardians or parents. And, and so people are construing that self's invitation for help automatically means invitation for illicit help. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, 
there are lots of ways in which an AAU program can help a, a, a major college program without breaking any NCAA rules. And so I don't, I, I think you shouldn't automatically conclude that because there's alleged illicit activity and because you have coaches like self uh, saying, you know, we could use some help or something along those lines, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean illicit help. I, I don't think it's fair to jump to that conclusion. I would never jump to that conclusion without some evidence uh, on, on the record. I know some people are comfortable with that, but I've, I, I've always called it what I call it. I call it raised eye, eyebrow journalism. Uh, mm. Well, look, we got something here and Hey, it, it, you, your eyebrows are supposed to go up, but then you're supposed to do some work. You're not automatic, not supposed to automatically jump to a conclusion. And it's easy to have hot takes now with Twitter and with podcasts, and it's easy to hop on and say something, but it is important to kind of take a step back and actually think, you know, like, like a, a journalist should in, in that case. So I think that's important. Okay, la last question for you, Mike, and we'll bring this back to the Big Ten here. Who's the player in the conference flying under the radar right now that you think is really going to surprise some people this season? Well, you know, I, I usually take credit for, like, finding players. Like, uh, the first time I saw Josh Rees play for Penn State, I knew he was a baller. And uh, Jordan Murphy at, at Minnesota, I, I, I was on his train very early uh, in my work at BTN. But I'm going to give full credit to Stephen Bardo, who came back from uh, watching Nebraska uh, calling one of their games and saying, Isaiah Roby is, is the real deal. And, and even now, Isaiah only finished his sophomore year averaging 8.9 points, but he is a really gifted player. He has a full game. Uh, he can block shots. He's a tremendous passer. I, I would like to – I think Nebraska will be better if he becomes more of an offensive factor, uh, gets his scoring average up into the low teens at least. Uh, I think at that – because I think he can do those – he can do some things that even some of the better players on his team Palmer and, and Copeland, very, very good players. But I think Roby can do things that they can't do. Uh, so I think if they emphasize him more, uh, they become even a better team. And so that's the guy that, you know, I, I think he will be an NBA player. And I think that if you have one of those on your team, you should use them as often as you can. Absolutely. Follow him on Twitter at TSN Mike. Watch him covering college basketball on BTN this season. Mike DeCourcy, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to doing this with you every week. Me too, Jared, very much. All righty. Coming up on Banner Monday, it is time for the first edition of Basketball 201 with Ben Ladner. We're going to discuss the basics of pick and roll defense and then dive into how Indiana tried to cover it last season and how we might see them try to cover it more this season. Stick with us here on the Assembly Call. Alrighty, and welcome back to the inaugural edition of Banner Monday, our new weekly show here at the Assembly Call. And I'm really excited about the segment that we have planned for you next. It's a bit of an experiment. I know this is going to work out pretty well on video. We're going to see how well it works out on the podcast. But this is the first edition of Basketball 201 with Ben Ladner. And basically, we're going to discuss the basics in this segment. We're going to discuss the basics of pick and roll defense. We'll dive into, you know, kind of talking about specifically how Indiana tried to cover it last season, how they might uh, try to cover it this season. And, 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 you know, kind of our idea with this segment is, you know, this is obviously beyond the basics of basketball. No Indiana fan needs that explained. But we want to try to provide a little bit more insight about some of the strategic concepts that Indiana is using 
um, you know, this would be very helpful for me because I think it's something that you know can kind of help you watch the game more intelligently, see what's going on um, a little bit clearer. Uh, and I think Ben is going to do Ben Ladner is going to do a great job with this. He is our new intern this season on the assembly call and inside the hall. You may have read some of his work so far on Six Banner Sunday. Um, he's doing that kind of alternating with Seth Toe. Um, he's had two seasons broadcasting basketball for WIUX. A year on the football and basketball beats with Twenty Four Seven Sports. And Ben, you write about hoops for various outlets, so you love the game, and uh, and I'm excited to to do this segment with you. So thanks for carving out some time on a Monday for us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's uh, I'm like you. I'm, I'm kind of I don't know exactly how this is going to come through on <laughs> uh, the non visual side, but we'll definitely give it a shot. Yeah, and I want to start this out. I actually want to read something from the introductory article that you wrote at Inside the Hall because I think okay. it's great, and I think it provide some insight into your mindset as a basketball fan um, that, that is just kind of good as, as to provide some context for the segment. So you wrote, basketball is at once glaringly simple and impossibly complex. The object is to throw a ball through a hoop, sure, but the strategy, decision-making, and physical ability required to accomplish that task can be overwhelmingly complicated. It is, among other things, an art form requiring varying degrees of skill, power, speed, and deception, and no two teams combine those elements exactly the same way. That's what makes the game fascinating and continually draws me closer to it. The who and what of basketball are plain for anyone to see. Understanding the how and why takes more digging and is ultimately the more worthwhile pursuit. And essentially, that's what we're going to try and do with this segment is describe the how and why. So I, yeah. lo I, I love that. I, I really thought that was a great passage. Thanks. Yeah, no, I just I think there are, uh, there are layers to watching the game, right? You can You can watch it and look at the score and... Did the ball go in? Did the ball not go in? Who shot it? Who has the most points? Whatever. But, um, you know, I think the more you watch it, the more you kind of get a sense of why things are happening. Um, you start to look more at kind of the process of possessions and, you know, the the sequence of actions leading up to the shot and what did they, you know, get a shot the right way? You know, were they executing well? Um, and you, when you can kind of separate that from the actual result of things and look at the execution, the strategy and just kind of the the deeper elements of it. I think that's when you start to really get somewhere when you're as a basketball viewer. So as we said, we're going to start out talking about the pick and roll and how to defend the pick and roll. And why in your mind is this such a great place to to start and kind of such an essential thing for fans of basketball, especially IU basketball to understand? Well, I think two reasons. Number one, the pick and roll is, I think, becoming increasingly popular um, it, in the last few years in the NBA we, they went through this this kind of phase maybe in the late 2000s where it was a lot of ISO, maybe people trying some more motion-based stuff, a lot of post-ups as well. But now with, you know, kind of the the mathematical side of basketball becoming more prevalent and the spacing that's that's come into the game, the idea of just spreading the floor, taking the most efficient shots you can, the pick and roll has become the most essential action uh, in the entire game. And so NBA teams are running it basically across the league. That's trickling down into the college game as well. And it's, to me, the most essential action that a defense has to be able to stop. If you can't stop the pick and roll, you're probably not going to have a very effective defense. And number two, I thought this was the way Indiana de uh, defended the pick and roll last year was one of the biggest disagreements I had um, with their style. I, I thought they did a lot of things well on the defensive end, a lot of things well on the offensive end. I think of everything that they did, the, the thing that confused me maybe the most was their their pick and roll defense. And part of that was just, it was early in the year. They were learning a new system with a new coach, new personnel, all that kind of thing. But 
you know, to me, I, I thought they, they could have been more effective defending it. And so when I look at their outlook for this season, when I look at the personnel they have and how good a team they can be, that's maybe the biggest area, maybe other than three-point shooting, but that might be the biggest area where they have room for improvement and can really step up and be even better than they were on defense last year. And there are a lot of different ways to defend the pick and roll. And as we yeah. go through you know, the, the first couple of weeks with this series, we're going to talk about a lot of them, but we want to start with the two that are kind of the most important, the way Indiana did it last year, and then a way that we've talked about them possibly doing it moving forward. And so the way this segment is going to work is it's not just going to be us talking about it. You've actually got some videos, you've got some clips to walk folks through this. And so again, we're going to try and explain this in a way that makes sense on the podcast. But if you want to actually see the visuals, you can go to our YouTube channel at any time, youtube.com slash assembly call. This will be uh, in episode 431. We may actually break this video out and put it there by itself as well. So it's easier to access, but you can always go get the visuals for this um, if you want to see them. Uh, to kind of be accompanied with with what we're talking about, so let's go with uh, with the first clip, Ben, and and just start kind of going through this. All right, so this is um, this is a hedge. This is what Indiana did for most of last season. Later in the year, they started going more to a drop coverage, which I guess we'll get into maybe next episode. Um, but this is how they started the year. This is a game against Howard, obviously early in the game. We've got the ball here on the right wing. Josh Newkirk defending the ball. Howard's kind of getting set up in their in their set. And it starts off, they they clear that other guy out of the way and just run a straight side pick and roll, trying to get to the middle. Um, ball handler goes left. And Indiana, what they would do was bring this big man, the guy who's guarding the screen, or bring him all the way out and stop the ball. And basically, the, the, the point of hedging a pick and roll basically is to either cut this guy off and prevent him from coming around and getting middle here or forcing the ball out of his hands and making him go to the roll guy or maybe to this guy over here and just kind of delay the possession and make sure that this guy cannot get around and penetrate in the middle. So we see Deron Davis come all the way out. He cuts him off. You look how far Deron Davis is out on the floor. I mean, I mean, almost halfway to half court. Yeah, it's a good 30 feet from the basket. And so what, what this does, and we'll see kind of the consequences of this in the next clip, but what this does basically is it gives... The offense, if this guy can get rid of the ball, the offense has a four on three, right? It's one, two, three, these four guys for Howard against these three guys for Indiana because Josh Newkirk and Deron Davis are guarding the ball. And the man and, that Deron was guarding is now cutting toward the basket after setting. He's right here. So Jawan Morgan has to slide over to pick him up. Robert Johnson is one pass away right here. So he's in help. And basically Devontae Green is kind of zoning up on this, this weak side. And if the ball goes to him, he closes out there. If it goes here... He closes out there and he's basically in charge of taking away both of these guys. And like I said, in the next clip, we'll see how that can be dangerous for an offense. But Howard comes around the corner. Newkirk is able to get rewind it. He kind of goes over the screen, but under Deron Davis gets back in front of the ball. And Juwan Morgan over here slides over. Once Davis gets back to his man, they're able to kind of return to these normal matchups. And it's just a one-on-one. Newkirk stays in front. Good closeout by Robert Johnson. Howard drives middle. Johnson able to guard his yard, and they're able to shut off that action. Howard would transition into another one. And you so, know, and what's so clear here when you watch that clip is of the five defenders Indiana has on the floor, Deron Davis is the least athletic, like the least you know adept at making the kind of movements that he's being asked to make there. And I mean, that's you know p- part of why Howard wants to put him in that pick and roll to defend that. But he's got to really cover a lot of ground and do it quickly. Right. And that can be one of the challenges is if your big man isn't the quickest guy. I mean, the Celtics used to do this all the time with Kevin Garnett. 
And that's because they had Kevin Garnett, one of the greatest <laughs> defenses, defensive players of all time. And he was quick enough to get out there and scamper around. So, but if your big man isn't fast enough, or if he's not in great shape, I mean, that takes a lot of effort to, you know, run up and down and, and get all the way out there on the floor that can kind of take it out of you. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely requires the big men to be in good shape for them to be active. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good point you make. And, you know, and, and the thing with Duran, and, and we've talked a lot about his struggles defending the pick and roll is, you know, it was never, it, it's never been about effort with Duran. Like he's always right. been a guy who's played really, really hard defensively and really tries. And, and you can tell he's trying to move as fast as he can. He just gets in those situations where he's got to cover so much ground against guys that are quicker than him. And it's just a mismatch. Yeah. And it can also be when they, you know, if the hedge is successful, but the ball handler gets rid of the ball, it's recovering and getting back to your normal matchups before the offense is able to attack. That can be a challenge too, because a, sometimes you don't know where you're going because the matchups can change. And B, if you're 30 feet from the hoop, you have to sprint all the way back underneath the basket and and cover your man and get back to him. So that can, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work. And, and to me, it is a little bit, I mean, if you can simplify the pick and roll, I think that's what you want to do. And to yeah. me, it's, it's almost hard work for hard work's sake. You always want to work hard on defense, but if you can conserve energy, if, if you can play it without having to, you know, work, work hard and you can rather work smarter, um, then I think that's probably the better way to go. And, and for a guy like Duran too, it can lead to fouls because as he's trying to move so quickly, then he's got to stop on a dime. It can get him out of position and get him leaning and put, make him vulnerable to, to foul calls, which we saw from him. You know, I think, you know, it's very easy to talk about, okay, you know, this is not good for all these reasons, but then you ask, okay, why did Indiana do this? Well, I guess the alternative would be you could just switch Duran onto the guy dribbling the ball, but now Duran's guarding a point guard <laughs> and that's probably right. not going to work out so well either. So, yeah. And it also, if, if you have a dynamic ball handler, a guy who can shoot off the dribble or a guy who's really quick and can turn the corner and get in the middle, it can be a good way of, you know, keeping the offense at bay and, and preventing them from getting the ball in the middle of the paint, which can be one of the most vulnerable areas of a defense. Yep. So it certainly has its advantages. I, I, I don't mean for this to come across as though um, it's completely useless because obviously, you know, Archie Miller is a great coach and, and he's using it for a reason. And, um, and, everything I is context, and I'll just say everything is context dependent. You know, everything right. is based on your roster and the opponent and there can be, you know, different ways to do it for different teams. So, you know, all of these have their strengths that, you know, they're, they're all strategies for a reason. So, yeah. So the second clip I want to show is, is one that people might recognize as well. It's actually an example from the NBA, but it's a, uh, it's a strategy that the, the Warriors hedged a lot, um, in the finals actually. And whenever they play the Cavs and a LeBron James team in general, see if I can enlarge the video here. So basically what the Cavs like to do against the Warriors, and I guess now this will be the Lakers or the Rockets, whoever, um, is they like to get Steph Curry on the switch in the pick and roll, attack him one-on-one. And so in order to avoid those switches, what the Warriors would do, see they're trying to get Steph involved in the action here. Iman Shumpert screens. Steph comes out, he tags LeBron, while Andre Iguodala gets over the screen and back in front, and basically they're able to make LeBron turn his back to Steph's man, and so he's not able to make that pass as quickly, and Steph, using his speed, is able to close out and recover. And so that can be another way, um, just, it, it, again, matchup-dependent kind of thing, where if you, if you feel like this ball handler is really dangerous, we can't let him switch or we can't let him turn the corner, it can be an effective way to do that if you're willing to you know, concede the occasional open three. Yeah, and the key there is, you know, Steph got out there just enough to stop LeBron's momentum. So LeBron wasn't able to turn the corner. 
And then he really had to hustle back. So the thing that stood out is how hard Steph Curry played in that sequence. I mean, that exactly. was, that and, was and hard. You, yeah, and like I, that, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier is you really do have to work hard in this scheme. And again, you always want to work hard on defense, but if you can, this is a scheme that requires a lot of motion. It requires a lot of fast motion and it requires the entire defense to be tied together because like I said, it, it when the big man hedges out, the offense gets that four on three advantage and then the entire defense is in rotation. And the next clip I'm going to show is a good example of how a good offense, a smart offense can hurt that because when you have that four on three advantage, if you move the ball quick enough and decisively enough, you can find an opening. And, you know, sometimes it, it's, it's almost the least of all evils choice for the defense. So the third clip here is, is back to Indiana, that memorable uh, oh, no. Indiana state game. I, th- I thought we were never mentioning this game again on the show. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't give you that memo yet. So this will pass. Yeah. So <laughs> Indiana state obviously uh, just rained threes on, on IU. I was actually broadcasting this game for WIUX, so oh, God. remember it well. This is, you know, late in the first half, games already out of hand. But this is, this is kind of an example and one that really was was maybe the the memory most burned into my brain from this game. It's pick and roll for Indiana State. They're going to swing it over. Now they get it up top. Indiana State had shooters, or had big guys who could shoot the ball. This guy who whose name is escaping me, number thirty five, he was able to torch Indiana, and so were ISU's other bigs. By when they set the screen, rather than rolling down here, which is what the defense wants, because now, and, 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 and just to describe this for the podcast, folks, he's setting the screen at the top of the key, and so you're talking That's about right. roll, rolling down toward the bucket. Top of the key, ball handler wants to go right and middle, and so Freddie McSwain is down here at the block guarding his man. If the roll man rolls, then Devonte Green over here on the right wing can either come in right here to the lane and tag him, or Freddie McSwain can step up. Preferably, you'd want to have Green come here because otherwise the guy at the block, the offensive player is wide open. But when this guy's able to pop, then we'll see what happens. When he turns the corner and you hedge, you've got two on the ball here, and the pop man is wide open. And so that puts Devontae Green in a pickle and, and basically has no right choice to make here because the ball handler, Brenton Scott, is going to get rid of it. Over here on the wing, Devontae does the right thing by going up to stop the ball because this is an open three if Devontae doesn't come and contest. The problem is that because you hedged and you put two guys on the ball, Green was the only guy on the weak side. And so ISU basically is, by having this guy pop to the the left wing, is able to overload this weak side. One pass, Green steps up, easy swing pass to the corner, wide open three. And the way Indiana State was shooting that night, I mean, they're not going to miss that shot. So, and and, and Freddie couldn't go out there because he's guarding the guy on the block. So if he leaves, it's a wide open two pointer. I mean, so he. That's has right. To stay you with you his look man. at the way when Green steps up right there. For one, Freddie's getting sealed, and they have this post entry if they want it. But if he gets around here, that's exactly right. If he if if Freddie comes around, then this is a wide open dunk, which is even worse than conceding a wide open three. So, you know, it, to me, when they set this screen. If Juwan wants to show quickly, like right there, and first of all, Robert Johnson should be getting over this screen, not under it. If Juwan wants to show quickly and then bust his tail back to the ball, that's I, that's all right. I mean, ideally, he would just kind of drop underneath and stay attached to his man yeah. while Johnson gets over. But by coming, I mean, look how far out Juwan Morgan comes. He follows the ball basically all the way to the right wing. And then this guy is just wide open. Morgan's not going to get there quickly enough. And then Green has to kind of be in two places at once. Yeah, you know, and you look at this and you watch a play like that 
And Devontae Green is probably going to be the guy that draws most of the fans' ire because they see him running at the three-point shooter. You know, right. Coach, Coach Don Sony calls it fake hustle, you know, where you don't really do an approach step. You just kind of, like, run by the guy with your hand up. Yep. But when you actually watch that sequence go together, Devontae Green is busting his butt trying to do as much as he can to cover yeah. two shooters. And really, the mistake was made by your experienced senior who was an all-Big an all Ten-level defensive player and Juwan Morgan. You know, just subtle mistakes, like you said, Robert going under the screen, Juwan maybe getting out there a little bit too far, and now, you know, you put Devontae Green in a position where he just can't win. And if you have a, yeah. an offense with even just a modicum of smarts to make the extra pass, they're going to get a wide open shot, which they did. Well, and that's the thing is that I don't even think the mistake was that bad. They, I mean, I yeah. thought they executed the scheme fairly well. It's just a problem with when you play that scheme against a team that has personnel like Indiana State. And a lot of teams do now with those popping bigs. When you play a team like that, whose bigs can shoot and just hurt you on the pick and pop. Indiana did this a couple of times to Duke with Juwan Morgan when he was able to pop. Um, it, it's just the scheme I don't think is quite as viable because it's banking on being able to help inside the paint. But when you, when you just keep everything out, keep the floor spread, have enough shooting on the floor, then giving the offense a four on three voluntarily is, is bad news. And I, I have a piece coming out, I think on assembly call, um, or inside the hall, I can't remember which one, uh, that kind of details this um, in a little bit um, with a little bit more nuance and goes through all of the coverages kind of at once. And a couple of the video clips I use was one of them was Indiana doing this to Duke, and the other was a play that they actually executed correctly against Michigan where, like you mentioned, Devontae Green, again, makes a really nice play and help defense, and he's able to shut off uh, the pass rather than give up a, a two-on-one. Yeah. And, you know, one of the lessons here is, you know, when you see a wide open three pointer being shot, don't immediately blame the guy who's running out there to try and defend it because it could have been, you know, something that happened five or six seconds earlier or three or four passes earlier that sets that entire sequence up to happen. And the, if the one thing you could say, maybe if you want to put fault green a little bit, is that, you know, if you want to play the percentages, a corner three is a better shot for the offense than a than a top of the key or, or above the break three. And especially when a big man's taking it as opposed to a guard. Yeah. Ideally in a vacuum, you'd rather give up uh, an above the break three to a big man than a corner three to a guard. So maybe you could argue that green should have just stayed home in the corner on his man and concede that slightly lower percentage three, but really they're both open threes at the end of the day. And so you're going to have to give one up over the other. So Really, it's hard to fault Green too much for that. In other words, there's a lot to process. <laughs> yeah, in every play you that happens, have to play those percentages in real time. You know, if you're the guard, you have yeah. to think. I mean, it's tough to just on your toes think. Okay, this guy makes this shot at forty percent, and this guy makes this shot at you know forty five percent. Which do I give up? And when you when you've got a two on one like that, and you have to make a decision. You're not always, always able to process that math and do that right there on the spot. What's interesting, did you see the piece on The Ringer about the Clippers? What is it called? Like Sports Vision or something? This new way that they're giving fans to watch a game where essentially no. you're, you're going to have an opportunity to overlay. It almost looks like a video game. And I mean, they're going to pr be processing huh. this stuff so fast with about a 10, 15 second delay. You'll actually be able to overlay, you know, so, you know, Juwan Morgan gets it on the wing, an open three pointer. What are the percentages that he makes it? And you'll actually see it as you're watching the game. Which wow. is yeah, which is kind of crazy, but it would help out with determining that kind of stuff because you'd yeah. be able to see immediately. Okay, does Devonte make the right choice based on what he should have learned in the scouting report? So, anyway, that that piece on the ringer is good though. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got one other video. It's a different coverage. If we want to hold it for next week, then we can. If if we want to go ahead and do it, then I've got it ready. Is this uh, switching? This is uh, 
oh, you're right. We haven't even gone to switching yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let, let's do switching, and then because we don't want any of these segments to be too long, it's a lot to process. Let's hit switching because we promoted it, and then you know, as we sure. go, we may end up just want to do one one coverage per week to really dive into it. But we talked about switching, so let's hit that too. Yeah. So IU didn't do a whole lot of switching last year. So the video I have is actually from the first round of the NBA playoffs, Raptors versus Wizards, and. So basically what you have here, basic man-to-man defense and what the Wizards are doing, you know, like a lot of uh, like a lot of NBA offenses do, they're trying to get a guard, Bradley Beal, switched on to a big Pascal Siakam. They couldn't get it there on the DHO. So Lauer, this is the right wing for those of uh, the people not watching. Uh, Mike Scott, Bradley Beal, pick and roll. Lowry's guarding Bradley Beal. Scott comes up to set the screen and Toronto switches it. Pascal Siakam steps out. Lowry takes Mike Scott here. And basically, the, what the Wizards want is just to be able to ISO because they're counting on their guy, Bradley Beal, a guard, being able to get past Pascal Siakam, a forward. Pro tip, not a great idea to attack Pascal Siakam in isolation. That guy is super quick and super long. Pro tip number two, good luck trying to play offense against Toronto. <laughs> exactly. And this is they don't even have Kawhi Leonard at this point either. So yeah. um, so Beal you know, sets up six on the shot clock in the fourth quarter, attacks Siakam. Good defense, able to keep hands high, stay in front. Cuts off the drive and forces a pass to to Sadoransky and a missed shot. So great defense there by Siakam. That's, I mean, that's a pretty simple clip, but switching is a simple scheme. And that's kind of the essence of it is you, you basically try to get as many versatile defenders on the floor as possible so that you don't have to, you know, put the defense in rotation. You don't have to have your guard fight over the screen and risk that, you know, one second where the guard is able to throw the pocket pass. If you can switch it, it, it minimizes the amount of space that the guard has to work. It minimizes the amount of time that you put the defense at a disadvantage. And so you just have your guy pop out on him and you take your chances. Maybe he's, you know, if you don't want to have Deron Davis switching out there on Carson Edwards, because he's likely going to get torched in the isolation, but you basically take your chances that the simplicity of it is able, if you're just able to stay in front of someone for five seconds, um, then, and force a tough shot, like, like Siakam does here, then that's a win for the defense. And so very simple scheme. I think it's maybe easier for certain players because they don't have to think about what kind of coverage they're playing. They don't have to think about the rotations they need to make. They can just get out there, move their feet, switch onto the ball. That's something I'd like to see Indiana do more often this season. They have Justin Smith. They have Juwan Morgan. Jerome Hunter, even Jake Forrester, I think, is a, a pretty quick guy for a big man. They've got a lot of guys between, you know, six six and six eight who are quick and strong and can move their feet. And I think, especially, you know, just the two through four positions, Zach McRoberts is another good example. On those ball screens, they don't always have to, you know, have their big man come out and go 30 feet from the basket to cut off the ball. They don't always have to have the guard fighting his tail off to get over the screen. I think if you have the opportunity to to switch and you don't feel like you're at that much of a disadvantage because you have guys who can guard multiple positions to me if you have the personnel to do that then i think you do it yeah it i hope that good. made sense that was a long-winded explanation but i, I hope it came through no it, no it did and and i hope to see indiana do it too and it's it's not something archie miller has done a lot in the past you know but he talked about being more open to it do a lot of teams who switch i mean do they have 
because you know, we talk about like the, you know the ideal right is to have like all these guys between six six and six eight and you can switch every screen. Most teams who switch effectively are they having most of their guys switch, but then they have certain rules. Like you said, you wouldn't want Duran switching onto Carson Edwards. So would it be something like okay, you know we're going to switch most of these screens, but in these situations X Y Z we're going to play it this way. And at what point does that get too complicated and you start getting diminishing returns? Yeah, so a lot of teams do do that where if they have a guy. You know, if they're playing kind of small ball, but they still keep a traditional center on the floor, maybe they'll switch one through four or maybe two through four just so that they can have their point guard if he's a smaller guy and their big man if he's a slower guy. They can have them kind of stay on their normal matchups and prevent getting torched in isolations. So, but, but I think, you know, that's a big reason why you're seeing such a premium placed on these six, seven wings who can shoot and play defense, these three and D guys. That's why the Rockets are so hungry for these guys is because those are the types of players you need. I don't know that this style of just forcing the switch on every possession and attacking is going to stick in the long term in the NBA. But for now, that's kind of in vogue. And that's what the Warriors do. That's what the Cavs have done with LeBron. And so you need the personnel to combat that. That's not quite as prevalent in college. I don't think they focus as much on, you know, attacking just specific matchups over and over and over again. But another thing that we saw in 2016 that it kind of came into prominence was the pre-switch which is when the defense knows that the offense wants to get that guy switched out on him, they'll have the screener's man, when the the guy's coming up to set the screen, a quicker wing will switch onto that screener and they'll do a a real quick switch Mm. um, so that the big man can avoid getting the screen. And and there were certain plays sometimes, uh, especially in 2017, where you saw defenses would keep pre-switching and the offense would just keep calling more and more ball screens until they finally got the guy they wanted. Just, uh, just like an screen. endless loop with constant shot clock violations. As we exactly. just... <laughs> it's crazy. Well, but that's the thing. If, if you're able to prolong that just enough and they don't get yeah. the switch until five on the shot clock, then the defense has basically done its job. You're forcing the guy into a pretty tough shot there. So yeah, to answer your questions, there are certainly strategies to avoid having your slowest guys or your shortest guys or your you know weakest guys be put in isolations and just attacked. But for the most part, uh, if you have the personnel to do it, I think uh, most teams, you know, they want to put as many guys on the floor as possible that are able to guard at least two or three positions just so that they don't leave themselves vulnerable, um, you know, to isolations and to pick and rolls and attacks. One thing you're also seeing more often is switching off the ball, where on the backside, if you feel like there's going to be a a drive or you want a certain guy in a certain spot, um, or you know that that screen's coming, maybe you'll switch in, in help position, you'll have two guys exchange. Or if there's an off-ball screen, you're trying to get a pin down for a shooter instead of having someone, you know, try to get skinny and fight over the screen. Then you just have the screener's man pop out and and take that that guy coming off the screen. And you're able to switch that that, like I said, for same thing as ball screens, it just minimizes the amount of space that they have coming off that screen. Yeah. And so that's something that you're seeing more and more popular in the NBA, not quite as much in college. And uh, last thing here, Kent just asked in our chat, is it personnel difference this year as opposed to last year that would allow IU to switch? And I think, yes. I mean, uh, yeah, Indiana I so. played a lot of last year with shorter guards like Josh Newkirk, like yeah. Robert Johnson. You're going to have Romeo Langford now, who's going to have a lot more defensive versatility. Um, you've got Zach McRoberts, who's a very versatile defender. You know, Jawan Morgan, Justin Smith, as you said. And I think also, you know, you have an opportunity, even with younger guys, I think, to maybe put a team out there with a higher collective basketball IQ, too. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like a guy like Freddie McSwain, I think was a terrific, like physical player and did a lot of things athletically, but just doesn't, didn't have the basketball experience. A lot of guys did to kind of have those instincts. And I think you'll have more guys, uh, you know, like some of the guys that you talked about, that'll just have maybe a little bit quicker instincts to make some of those decisions. 
And I think that's actually the, the, the thing about instincts and basketball IQ. I think that'll actually help them execute those more traditional schemes like hedging and dropping more effectively. Because like I touched on earlier, sometimes switching is just not only physically, but mentally the easier thing to do. Yeah. Because when the screen comes, you don't have to worry about, okay, where am I rotating? You know, where do I have to be? Who's guarding this guy? Where, where does this guy have to be? And how do I have to rotate? You don't have any of these questions. You can just say, okay, my guy screened. That means I'm guarding the ball now. And it's so for a guy like Freddie McSwain, who is super quick, super strong, can guard a ton of positions, that might have even been easier than trying to get get out and hedge. He was yeah. a good hedger because he's so quick. But I think with that kind of mobility, and you don't have to pr- you don't have to put out any of those of those questions of rotations and and having all five guys coordinate together. It's just the two guys guarding the ball screen just switch spots, and and that's the end of it. So it's it's a really simple scheme. And so I think uh, it's never bad to have a you know higher basketball IQ, higher intelligence on the floor. So yeah. I think that'll help them in, in basically all coverages that they choose to go to. Yeah. All right, man. Well, tons of positive comments about this in the, in the YouTube awesome. chat. So this the, the first it. segment uh, went well. You know, one thing I will say just to let the podcast listeners know, one thing maybe we can do a little bit better at in the future, both of us, is as we're describing the plays for the people who can't watch visually, instead of saying here, we can be descriptive of what here is since they're not going to yeah. be able to see uh, uh, your arrow. But all in all, that was a, that was a lot of fun. I learned something, and uh, and I look forward to continuing this as we go through the season, breaking down different oh. stuff. And if there's, you know... It, listening watching if there are specific things you would like us to break down let us know we're going to do pick and rolls you know so we'll go through that for a few episodes um but you know we want this to be responsive to things that you want to know um and hopefully as the season goes on and you and i haven't talked about this a lot yet ben but hopefully we can actually do kind of some film breakdown of some games you know and 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 pick out you know similar to what ryan carraza does it inside the hall and does a great job of it but even be able to expand on that even more because i think the more film type work we can do, it's just going to help, you know, IU fans be smarter, more well-informed. And, you know, that's what we're all here for. So great job with this. I really appreciate you putting it together. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that is going to do it for us on this week's episode of Banner Monday, our first, hopefully the first of many. If you want to see us do the show live and be part of the live chat, join us at assemblycall.com on Monday afternoons for the live broadcast of our Banner Monday recording. And you can always subscribe to our podcast by searching for Assembly Call wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to go to assemblycall.com or text IU to 66866 to join our free email newsletter, which will make you a smarter and more well-informed IU basketball fan. Thank you for listening. We will be back to talk IU hoops again with you on Thursday night. Until then, keep your elbows in and your eyes on the rim. And go Hoosiers. Thank everybody for coming out. All right, I got to get out of here, folks. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for listening to this episode of The Assembly Call. We appreciate it. And we really do rely on the support of audience members like you to keep our show going and to keep growing. And so we have set up a page on our website at assemblycall.com slash support that lists five ways that you can support The Assembly Call. And we encourage you to choose whichever method is the easiest and most convenient for you. One of the methods is donating, and so many of you have donated, and we appreciate it so much. On that page, you can choose a monthly recurring donation or an annual recurring donation or just a one-time donation, whatever works for you. And if you don't want to donate, another way to support the show is you can use our affiliate URLs, iutickets.shop or iustore.shop when you're going to shop for tickets or gear, and we will get paid a small commission when you use those links. But however you support the show... We appreciate it. Thank you. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. 
they're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client. Sticky notes. Email alerts. A string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client.